we're sitting here talking and I'm seeing Kevin Wanstroff laying in a pool of blood surrounded by stuffed animals. That's something I can't unsee. I wish I could. Haunting memories from the homicide detective known as the cop who wouldn't quit. This is Robert Riggs with a true crime reporter story from inside the crime scene tape. God forbid if I was ever murdered, I would want Johnny Bonds on the case. Bonds is a legendary Houston, Texas homicide detective known as the cop who wouldn't quit. After four decades in law enforcement and a thousand cases, Bonds sat down with me to talk about the motives for murder. One case sticks out from his career, the murders of John and Diana Wanstroth and their baby son, Kevin. Their killers would have gotten away with murder if not for the relentless and fearless work of Johnny Bonds. I joined the police department in Houston in 1967. I was promoted to uh, detective, which was the same as sergeant, detective sergeant in 1972 and went in homicide. I, I was in homicide until 1980, got transferred to uh, internal affairs against my wishes. And, and uh, when I complained, said I didn't want to go, they basically told me, so well, you don't have to, you can find another job. <laughs> so I was in uh, internal affairs when this broke, when this case broke, I kept working on it while I was in internal affairs. And, and that case and, uh, was? The Wanstra case. Yes. And, and I was working it on my own time while I was an IED, and, and uh, the ex-wife of one of the suspects gave me information that broke the case. But I kept working on it. And then while I was an IED, uh, the chief then supported me, and, and he basically took all my IED cases and gave them to other people and, and told me to work on this full time. Well, you spent a year so many years investigating murder, what different flavors does it come in? And were there signatures you would see at murders that you would immediately have a hunch about the motive behind it? What are, what are the motive, common motives you saw as a homicide detective? First one would be passion. I always said that money, women, or, or it couldn't in any case, jealousy, and passion, anger, and fear were the motivations for most murders greed would be money and most murders you know thank god most of them are solved right on the scene i mean the husband kills the wife the wife kills the husband two friends get in an argument over a pool game you know those are the easy ones those are the ones you go out you do your scene investigation and you come in you file charges that day and it's over and, and you know, it's a 24-hour murder it's it's done the whodunits the clearance rate that's the ones that are difficult where you have a dead body and that's where you start with the, with the deceased. You find out everything you can about them. And then you try to figure out who would kill them and why. Now, the main thing is motive. Police for investigators, you don't have to prove motive in court. But for a homicide investigator, motive is very, very important. So uh, you try to figure out who this person is and why, why would someone want to kill them. Uh, most, most murders were spontaneous. Very, very few murders are planned. Even when they're planned, they normally don't go as planned. There's usually some, some mistake made. You know, like on the Wanstra case, that one was planned. It was even attempted two weeks before it happened, and, and, and something went wrong. And they couldn't do it. And, and then they made a huge mistake. They, they, left, uh, they left some evidence at the scene that they brought there. 
On the morning of July 6, 1979, a housekeeper discovered the bodies of John and Diana Wanstroth and their baby son, Kevin, in an upscale Houston neighborhood. The chief medical examiner determined that the family's deaths were a double murder-suicide, ruling that Diana Wanstroth shot her husband and baby to death before turning the gun on herself. Family and friends of the Wanstroth knew it couldn't be true. Johnny Bonds knew the ruling was wrong in part because no gun was found at the scene. Bonds challenged the almighty, powerful Harris County Medical Examiner in a case fraught with politics. The husband and wife were in the den. He was sitting in a uh, easy back chair. The wife was on the floor in front of the fireplace, and all, all three of them had been shot in the head, and the baby was in the nursery in its crib asleep been shot in the head. Medical examiner, that was the very first psychological autopsy that was done in Harris County. And they sent out a psychologist, a, a Catholic priest named Tom Whaley, who was a suicidologist, is what he called himself. Never heard it of it. It always sounded to me like a little voodoo or something. It ac- absolutely was. I had heard of psychological autopsies. The first one that ever was done was uh, in the uh, when Lenny Bruce committed suicide. Uh, when he died, uh, they had a psychologist look, and they were, didn't know if it was accidental or intentional. It mm-hmm. was a drug overdose. And the New York, at the time, in 79, the New York Medical Examiner and the Los Angeles Medical Examiner both had full-time psychologists on their staff doing psychological autopsies. Well, the uh, medical examiner in Houston wanted one, too. So the Catholic Church provided this guy. He charged the county $50 per body to do these psychological autopsies. And what it amounted to, what we watched over the next six months, was him going in that house, searching every inch of it, looking at all the books, all the music, all the food they ate, all the personal notes, what kind of underwear they wore. I'm serious. It, it was ridiculous. And then uh, after six months, he determined that the wife had killed her husband and baby and then committed suicide. And the biggest problem was there wasn't a gun at the scene. There wasn't any trace of that gun at the scene. There wasn't any ammunition. Uh, we knew exactly what kind of gun we were looking for, and there was no record of anybody in that family ever owning a gun. How do you account for no gun? In in the three-page uh he called it dosi. It's a determination of suicidal intent in, the, in that a party or parties unknown removed the weapon from the scene. And that's it. That's how they accounted for it. They actually at one point accused me of taking the gun. Wow. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was absolutely So they ridiculous. really became desperate to defend that, uh, that incorrect ruling that it was suicide. Yeah, and, and it turns out later there were at least two other cases that, that had been ruled suicide that later turned out to be murders that, that this guy had ruled suicide. Uh, and, and there were probably more. Uh, that's two that I know about, so I, I don't, you know, and, and it's not done anymore. I don't know of anybody that's doing it anymore. Despite the medical examiner's ruling that it was suicide, Bonds never had any doubt it was murder, but the pressure was on to close the case. In my case, in the Wanstrock case, I had three murders that would be cleared by suicide. 
and it's hard it's hard for people to believe this but when it's real suicide by the medical examiner it's a it's a load off the homicide division's back you don't have to work on it anymore we've got a medical examiner who says it's suicide and if they say that we can't we can't do anything with it move on to the next case yeah move on to the next case and that's a cleared case which is good for their stats and here's something that's it's gonna it draws anger from people in the profession but an autopsy is a medical opinion and there's been many times that the results of autopsy have been proved wrong it, it's not a fact it's just an opinion it's a professional opinion it's an expert opinion and the uh the prosecutors in all law enforcement depend on that is uh, and it's it's wonderful to have a good relationship with the medical examiner and law enforcement it's, it's absolutely necessary that they have a good relationship i caused a lot of problems you know, I was in some trouble for causing problems because I disagreed with one of the prominent, most prominent medical examiners in the United States. Bonds drew a bead on suspects. Their motive for murder? Money. More on that in a moment. Johnny Bonds challenged the suicide ruling. His investigation focused on Markham Duff Smith, the dead woman's brother and beneficiary of her life insurance policy. Just four years earlier, Duff Smith's mother also had died under suspicious circumstances. His mother had been found in her River Oaks mansion dead, and it had been ruled a suicide. I did not work on that case. I remember I was in homicide when it happened. I remember it, and it was a little questionable, but the ME's office ruled it suicide. Bonds received information that Duff Smith had his mother killed to collect on her life insurance. He inherited about $100,000 from his mother and went through it, and this is in 75. $100,000 was a fortune, and he went through that in less than two years. He was broke. Two years later, he was dead broke. So... He was running an insurance scam, too, at the same time the Wanstross were killed. He was running an insurance scam. He was just, he'd never been arrested, but he was, he was a deadbeat. But he was a guy that liked to impress people with how well, well off he was. Um, you know, I was raised in River Oaks. I'm wealthy. And he wasn't. He, he, was, he, was, just, he was just a deadbeat. So I kept up with him. I knew if he got the money, he'd go through it pretty quick, and he did. And he was married at the time, so was my other suspect, a guy named Walt Waldhauser, who's still in prison under the name of Michael Lee Davis, on insurance fraud cases out of Dallas County. He's up for parole right now, by the way. Any, anyhow, uh, I figured that they would end up, I figured that both of them would end up divorcing their wives, and that's exactly what happened. And so I approached, this was over a year after the murders, I approached both of the wives. Uh, neither one of them wanted to talk to me. One of them, Dustman's uh, wife, Cindy, uh, I, I approached her and I knew things. He had ruined her credit. She had no idea. She didn't know what he was doing. She believed all of his lies about him, you know, making all this money in the insurance business. He, he would get credit cards in her name and run them up and not pay them. And she didn't even know it, ruined her credit. Anyhow, he divorced her. I approached her first, and, and she was, uh, we're friends. I talked to her last week. We're still friends. She, uh, she didn't know much, but she was very helpful. She got me in touch with Waldhauser, his wife, 
a different story. She knew a lot. And when I finally talked to her, she, they were in the process of getting a divorce. He had gotten temporary custody of their child. And she basically told me, you help me get my kid back. And I'll, I think I got information that'll help you on this case. I think he, he she said, I'm pretty sure he killed a Wanstrosser, had something to do with it. But he said, I want, I want my kid back. You got to help me. So I talked to her divorce attorney. I said, subpoena me to the, to the hearing is a child custody hearing. And I will say that, that her husband is a suspect in this murder case. And they said, and he said, well, it's been ruled su suicide. And I said, yeah, I know that. And I said, I can't go into reasons. I won't answer questions. I won't let them pick apart what I know, but I will say they're suspects in, in the murder case that they killed the Wanstraw. And he said, okay. So they suspended me that hearing and Walt, I'd questioned Walt Hauser several times. He knew who I was and I'm outside the courtroom and he saw me there and he came over and wanted to know why I was there. And I said, I, you're, uh, I'm here for your hearing on child custody. And he says, well, why? And I said, well, uh, her, your wife's attorney has subpoenaed me. I said, I'm going to tell him you're a suspect in killing the Wanstrop. He said, you can't do that. And I said, that's what I said. That's what I'm going to do. So I, I watched him. He ran over to his lawyer and his lawyer. And man, he was squawking and throwing his arms up. And then his lawyer went and talked to her lawyer. And they talked for 10 or 15 minutes. And I saw his lawyer go over and get the kid by the hand, take it over to his wife and hand the wife. And they left. So the wife then told me that he had a friend that was in prison, that he had been corresponding with him for years, that the guy had been in prison, and they talked about doing stuff all the time. Said he's from up in Fort Austin somewhere, some little country town, and he's got a funny name. It's like a, a German or a Polish name. And said, but I, and I went with him once to visit this guy in prison. I sat in the car when he went into the unit and visited with this guy back in two or three years before the murders happened. And, and I said, well, do you have anything at home? And she said that might, you, he, she told me they wrote each other. There were letters back and forth while he was in prison. And I said, do you know if there, any of them are still there? And she said, I don't know. The house is, uh, is in repossession. He'd, he'd gone in. I tell people too, I got to go back and tell this story. This guy made the biggest mistake I ever saw in his life. They were, they were in process of getting a divorce. She had a job. She leaves her job one day, goes out the parking lot, and her new Buick is gone. It's miss, missing. So she calls her mom, says, I got to get over to the daycare center to, to uh, get the kid, and says, I don't have a car, and said, I'll, I'll report it once we pick the kid up. She goes to pick the kid up at the daycare and says, well, your husband came by and picked him up at 1 o'clock, and he was in your car. And she says, oh, my God. So she goes home. Goes in the house, every stick of furniture in that house, including the, the refrigerator and the stove and the stove, he came in and cleaned that house out. He she didn't have nothing. Didn't have a car, a kid, or any furniture in her house. And he taken everything he didn't want and just dumped it in the corner of a bedroom. There was a pile of trash in the corner of the bedroom that was probably four foot by four foot and about two feet high. Just dumped out garbage and letters and papers. So I said, can I go back and look at, at that? And she said, yes. And we dug through that, and I found two or three letters from Alan Wayne Janeka, an inmate at TDC. I took that back to the office. I did a search on him. I found his criminal history. I found that he'd been involved in a murder in, uh, a month before of a drug dealer in Houston. 
that another guy named Richard Bufkin had been charged with the murder. Thus, uh, Janeka was a suspect, but he was never arrested or charged. So I tracked Bufkin down. He, he'd been convicted, and, and the judge in that case accidentally gave, he, got, he pled guilty to murder. The judge, six months later, gave him shock probation, which was illegal, but the judge didn't know that. You can't give shock probation at the time for a murder case, but he did. So this kid served six months in prison and got out and, and was on parole. I truck, tracked him down in Corpus. He was delivering uh, shop towels. He worked for a service that did linen for, for garages and stuff. Caught him on the route, talked to him. I was trying to get enough information to charge. I read the report. There was enough there. They should have charged the neck with murder. He was a party to it. They were ripping off a dope dealer and shot and killed the dope dealer. Actually, it was a capital murder. But, but uh, uh, the dope dealer got Janeka down, was going to kill him, had him on the floor, was trying to get his gun away from him and shoot him. Buffkin came up behind the dope dealer, shot him in the head and killed him. And then they took off. They took the dope and ran off. Well, Buffkin uh, was very cooperative on the phone. He told me enough that I had enough I could file charges, I thought, on, on Janeka for killing this, this dope dealer. When I got through, I said, look, I'm working on another case I think he might be involved in. I said it was, a, it was a murder of a family in 1979. It was a man, woman, and their child. And he said, oh, wow. I says, he wanted me to help him do that. And I said, what? He said, yeah, he told me that some guy want, wanted his sister killed for her inheritance and that this lawyer friend of him was setting it up, and he wanted to know if I'd help him do it. And I knew then that from that point, everything fell in place. Within a week, we had the murder weapon. Uh, my partner, Dan McNulty, recovered that weapon in Georgia. Uh, Janeka had moved there with a the girl. He was actually back in Houston when we arrested him. This was in November of 1980. He was in Houston. Uh, they'd called him back to kill another person. He came back to, to commit another murder. Uh, and, and we caught him before they could do that. He'd, he'd been back in Houston for a couple of weeks. They were setting up a guy, a friend of theirs, in a business that insured him for a half a million dollars and we're going to have with them as business partners they would have collected on the life insurance and Janeka was going to kill him and they were going to collect on that that and this is a guy that they'd known since kids since they were kids a drinking buddy they were just horrible they were horrible from that point on once we got the gun everything fell in place we got charges filed the first trial was in march or april march i think of 1981 and the week before the trial started, Jehamachek was being subpoenaed as a, the medical examiner was going to be a defense witness. And he was still sticking with the suicide rule. He wasn't going to change it. So, uh, but he did. He, he, finally, he finally changed it to a, uh, a murder case, murder rule. Let's, let's go back to that gun a minute because you couldn't recover the bullets. They were shattered that had been used to kill the husband and wife. But you did for the baby, and it was really heartbreaking what had been done. Cold, so cold-blooded what was done to this baby. Talk about the rarity of the gun and how you found the slug. The 22 Magnum hollow points that were used, they shattered in the adult's brain. And so we had nothing to work with there in, in ballistics. We could tell by the bullet wound it was small caliber, but we, could, we couldn't say if it was 22, 25. We, we had no idea. The bullet that went through the child's head went through the mattress, and then it went into the wall behind the crib, and we cut the wall out and found the slug and fell down to the baseboard at the bottom up behind the wall. And you could have reloaded that 
that slug. It was in pristine condition. Put the information into the computer that you know, gives us a probability of weapons used. Came back 100% Colt Frontier Scout, which is the only time I've ever had a gun come back 100% one gun. That was, I said, the first miracle in this case that we knew exactly what weapon we were looking for. I never thought in my wildest dreams we'd find it. In November of 1980, when we identified Janeka, we tried to track him down. We had information that he was in around the Atlanta, Georgia, that he was had moved to Georgia with his girlfriend. We were going to go out there to try to see if we could find him in Georgia. And I, at this time, I had a partner named Dan McAnulty. Walt Hauser's ex-wife called us panicking, saying, I just left the airport. Janeka's here in Houston. I think they're following me. I think they're going to try to kill me. And that she had good reason to be afraid. Uh, I had no doubt. Her husband knew at this point that she was cooperating with us because I showed up at the child custody hearing. And she swore it was him. She saw him at the airport. We didn't know if he was in Houston or in, in, or in Atlanta, Georgia. So Dan went to Atlanta. I stayed in Houston. He calls me two days later. He tracked this girlfriend down. He was following her. He, he had a, a local officer, and they, they both set up surveillance. They were following her around one afternoon, one night. She goes to a beer joint in Georgia. She sits down, and she's talking with this, this guy, and they're drinking beer together. And the, un, the officer there with McNaught says, I know that guy. He's an ex-cop. He used to be a police officer here. So uh, he gets up to go outside. Dan goes out, confronts him, shows him his ID, says, I'm a cop from Houston. We're here trying to find that girl's boyfriend. We think he might have done some murders in Houston. And she, he says, oh, my God. Says she just told me that she has this boyfriend that's a hitman that he killed a bunch of heat people in Houston and he, and then she's got the gun he used. So <laughs> Dan almost had a heart attack when he said that. So they ended up following her home and just knock on the door and confront her. And she was, she was come kind of shocked, but she was very leery. And she says, you don't know that. And he says, yes, I do. And he says, I can tell you exactly what it looks like. He says, a Colt Frontier Scout, a 22 revolver. A single action looks like a cowboy gun. And she turned pale and said, oh, my God, went in her bedroom, lifted the mattress, pulled the gun out, and gave it to him. Uh, he called me. Wow. I, I had to sit down. I was just, <laughs> I can't believe it. They still had that gun. They ended up, they were trying to use it to blackmail Duff Smith to get more money from him. They actually had called him and had recorded the conversation and he, he was smart. Dust Smith didn't even act like he knew what they were talking about. And this girl, he called him and says, we got the gun y'all went fishing with. Said not, she says, we got the fishing pole that y'all went fishing with in Houston in 1979. And the DA would probably like to have that fishing pole do a little fishing himself, is what she put it. They were blackmailing him, trying to get more money out of him. And right after that's when they called him to come back to Houston and kill somebody else. No honor among killers. No, none at all. Yeah. You do make the case. The the brother of the victim is sent to the death chamber. Right. But he, he eventually confesses? At the execution. Was this his last words? Last words. About a month before 
Uh, we had uh, Janeka, the actual hitman, the killer, got his case got reversed. We had to try him again. We'd had a hearing and wanted to see if Dust Smith, his, his attorney had approached me and basically told me if, if I would help commute his, his death sentence to a life sentence, that he would publicly confess to all the murders. And I basically told him, I said, I, I don't need him to confess. I know he's guilty. And I said, what's important, though, is 12 other people knew he's guilty, too. So, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get his sentence commuted but he we had to retry Janeka, so they they kind of uh, said he may he may be able to help you in retrying Janeka. so they brought him we bench warranted him back to houston for the for a hearing and he basically got up on the stand and took the fifth and he basically said if y'all if y'all commute my sentence i'll uh, i'll tell you what i know about Janeka." and da's office basically said no we're not going to do that so he he didn't he didn't give us anything, and about two weeks later he was executed. I thought that he would die with no admission, but his his uh, final words were were that he was guilty of the seventy five and seventy nine case, and that the state's not fair, that my trial wasn't fair, and that was it. You know, you see these cases when they are some of them when they're caught. It's like they want to get it off their chest, or they get in the death chamber and they want to get it off their chest. What do you think psychologically is going on there? You know, I tell people that God or Jesus lives in prisons. He's under every inmate's bunk and he embraces them and they all become Christians in prison. But when they leave, they leave him there for the next inmate. But nearly all of the death row inmates, I think they're hedging their bets. I don't know if they truly have been saved or they're true believers. But I think they they think that uh, I better I better say I do believe and I better you know acknowledge my guilt and 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 God forgive me and most of them do. They're worried about going to hell. Yeah. What's the song say? I hope there's a heaven. I pray there's no hell. And I think that's exactly what you're thinking. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. The motive for murder is usually driven by money, as it was in the case you just heard, or by passion. But Johnny Bond says he is disturbed by an emerging motive for murder, anger, and the impulse to open fire in traffic or in the public over perceived slight or disrespect. You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter Podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. I'm Robert Riggs reporting. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness.